Today, we are continuing our series about learning from Abraham, and today is part six of this series. And um, just kind of picking up where we left off, we're going to go into Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 15, 15 through 16. And we're going to pause and reflect. It says, Then God said to Abraham, As for your wife, Sarai, you shall not call her by the name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And I want us to pause here, and if you remember, this is all still within the dialogue of God entering this covenant with Abraham. And this, uh, I want to pause here to look uh, to unpack this this part for us to understand reactions, reactions, and significant things will happen to those near us. Significant things will happen to those near us as reactions to our decisions, and our reactions to those things matter. So, we're talking about reactions upon reactions, how the people around us will have. Uh, reactions in their lives because of our decisions and how we react to their lives is also something that matters. See, in this part of the passage, it shows how our actions affects those close to us. As Abraham is entering into this covenant with God, his entire family is being entered into it too. You know, up to this point, um, Sarah is, Sarai's reference almost like consistently as like Abraham's wife. We don't really see a significant role or actions that she plays out besides that of being married to Abraham and being, uh, and as we see here, just as God blessed Abraham, he blesses Sarah. And Sarah was given this access to God's blessing and honor all because of Abraham's actions, decisions, and faithfulness. Now, don't get me wrong, she definitely had a part of, of agreeing with Abraham and, and following him um, and, and being faithful to Abraham as Abraham was faithful to God. But we're seeing God not letting that go unnoticed. He's not overlooking her commitment to Abraham, and he's taking it as a commitment to himself altogether. And what's more... She was given something very subtle yet powerful. The name Sadei, this is uh, this is really important. The name Sadei is translated to my princess. Okay? And Sarah is translated into a princess. It, it's very subtle, but it's actually very powerful because one is confined to restrictions of dependency while the other has none. It's independent. One has greater authority than the other. Sarah has greater authority than Sarai. And with her new name, she was given her own personal role in this covenant. She's no longer just Abraham's, but he, she's now this independent woman within this personal role of a covenant. She's grafted into this relationship with God in this moment, and she's no longer just seen as Abraham's wife, but she is now an independent partner in this codependent relationship and covenant. It, it's something incredibly special that <clears throat> that she's now an, uh, an independent uh, partner within this covenant. 
And the reason that this is all incredibly meaningful as we are studying Abraham is because it shows Abraham's confidence and security within himself. She gets this like promotion and he didn't grow insecure at the greater authority given to Sarah. He didn't, grow, he didn't get insecure. In fact, he honored and celebrated it. He didn't feel belittled. He didn't feel envious. He didn't feel jealous when someone else was blessed besides him. Nor did he try to claim all of the credit for bringing her into it. He respected and rejoiced over what God was doing in someone else. And his response, his reaction, and his acceptance of this shows a humble heart. A humble and confident heart. So that being said, I want us to go into our next part, next couple of verses. In verses uh, 17 through 22, it goes on to say, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, give birth to a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and, I, and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So let's pause here for a moment, because in this scene, we're going to unpack this idea of timid hope. Timid hope. And I want us to really um, uh, understand that it takes incredible, determined faith to, sh to choose to hope again after it has already been lost. Let me say that again. It takes incredible, determined faith to choose hope again after it has already been lost. In the scene, we see a side of Abraham that we can all relate to because he struggles to see the possibility of God doing this miraculous thing for something he cares deeply about. It's, I feel like it's almost easier for us to believe God to do a miracle for things that we don't care about. It's, it's, uh, it makes me think about a time I prayed for my mom's goldfish when she called me when she was drunk during a church meeting. And I was like, what the hell? And so I prayed for this goldfish that was clearly dead. <laughs> and... I had, it was, it was, it was little, I didn't have any like crushing of my hope. It was easy to make this prayer and praise God. The next day that fish was swimming around. I have some sort of doc, Dr. Doolittle stuff going on in my spirit and that fish was clearly dead and it was alive the next day. But if I were to look at that and, and try to take that same kind of expectation or, um, that, uh, the idea of, uh, praying for something that I care deeply about, it's completely different. Especially if it is something that I care deeply about that I have waited a long time for and felt hopeless when it came to answering it. There's certain things where it's just, you get, it's hard for you to pray for the same thing after a while. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And I can only imagine all of the years that they had hoped, that they had prayed, 
and waited only to feel completely deflated because the uh it's almost like it's almost like abraham doesn't want to get his hopes up again the way that he interacts with god right here how he he even deflects the promise that god is giving him now typically when we see uh, abraham previously he's like gung-ho for anything that god tells him and and he's he's doesn't he doesn't even ask for like a sign he just believes god at his word but it yet here is a is a moment where we first see abraham deflect to where he he doesn't really believe god at, at, in this moment and i could only imagine that the day when he and sarah agreed to use hagar as a surrogate mother that that was the day that they that they buried their dream of having kids together when they made that decision that was just a moment where they let their hopes die and that they that they looked at this this kind of like last resort thing and I can only imagine all the years that they had hoped that they had prayed and that they had waited only to feel completely defate def, uh, only to feel completely deflated only to feel unheard only to feel let down and think of the years that think of the years that they thought now is going to be the time that that they have children I mean they did all of the things that God told them to do and now they're in the place that God told them to be surely now is the time and then 10 years go by and nothing happens you know i think that this is why abraham struggles so much to believe again it's hard to get your hopes up again after they feel like they've been crushed and it's it's just super scary to get your hopes up like that uh, again and that's why he tries to subvert it into his own reasoning of how it can work and his and his reasoning is easier of him saying uh yes let uh, ishmael let this promise just go through ishmael and he's literally just deflecting what god is saying and saying let's just make it ishmael okay i don't want to hope again i don't want to do that again and the reason that he does that is because his reasoning is is it's easier to emotionally bear it because he doesn't have to hope again or trust again he's able to just have the control that he uh, of security of knowing that he doesn't have to expect something greater and be let down. And I think because of all of that emotional background and all that emotional baggage is why God tells Abraham so plainly and even specifically what's going to happen and when. All the other times that God is talking about this, it's uh, it's almost like vague stories. Like, Abraham, you're, you're going to have uh, look at the stars. Um, one day you're going to have descendants more than you can count. You know, look at the beach. Look at all the sand on the shore. There, you're going to have more descendants. And it's like these kind of vague imagery, but here in this moment, we see God be abundantly clear to him, and He says, "No, you will have a son around this time next year, and you'll you'll name him Isaac." So He He gives incredible specifics, and He only uh, uh, He He tells him specifically what's going to happen and when. And he not only affirms the timing, he affirms the name of the new child, but God reaffirms Abraham's concern for his firstborn son too. He reaffirms the concern that he has for his firstborn son. And it shows God's compassion extends and offers Abraham a confidence 
through specifically and clearly telling him about his plan. Let me say it again. God's compassion extends and offers Abraham a confidence to, to his faith, to this faith he's calling him to, through specifically and clearly telling him about his plan. And I feel that this is all meaningful to take in when considering our own hopes and even our lost hopes. To know that God doesn't see them as petty. He doesn't see the thing, our crushed hopes as something petty or think, uh, thinks of them as something small. But he cares compassionately about our desires and our letdowns. I think a lot of times we we don't think that God cares about our letdowns um, as as much as uh, as much as we do. But here I see that I feel that it shows that the more we connect ourselves to God, the once vague aspirations and dreams become more and more clear and specific the closer we get to God. God may speak to us a dream or aspiration early on in our faith, and might seem vague when we're young. But the closer and more mature we, we grow in our relationship to God, the more clear and specific those dreams become. Now let's go into our last, our last part, and it's Genesis, uh, continuing on chapter 17, verses 23 through 27. And it says, Then Abraham took his son Ishmael and all the slaves who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on the very this very same day as God had said to him now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin on this very same day Abraham was circumcised as well as his son Ishmael and all the men of his household, those who were born in his house and or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So, <laughs> circumcision, man. Uh, the act of circumcision, if you don't know, um, just uh, you may or may not have been circumcised uh, as a baby. Um, but a really clear way to, to know if you have or haven't is simply pulling down your pants and uh, looking at your penis and seeing if it has some extra skin around the, the, the little helmet there or not. Um, if, it, if you do, if you have to pull skin back, then you are not circumcised. And if it's just like already there, like we are like, what am I, what are you talking about? There's no skin there. Then your foreskin is gone and you're never going to get it back. Okay. And I want us to understand that I don't think I've really understood until I had my son. Now, let me be clear. Um, I'll talk more about this in a second. But we did. We chose to not circumcise our son, uh, more so as a step of faith. Um, now y'all all know what his penis looks like. Um, but the act of circumcision is already pretty intense just as a baby. Uh, there's times where I was like just looking, uh, looking up information about it. And I just heard like audio clips of babies being circumcised. And it's, it's exactly how you would imagine. It's like just the way a grown man would probably be screaming and crying is just like in a baby form. And if, if we can, if it's traumatizing and uh, pretty intense just as a baby, but to do as a grown man, to do that as a grown man, I mean, 
Me personally, I wince just at trimming down there and getting a little nick. All right, talking about a whole uh, a whole situation going on, and the reason that this act is so symbolic is because this body part is the defining physical attribute of a man. I know that that's conflicting for a lot of uh, 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 ideas um, around sexuality today, but no matter what, no matter what we can try to subvert, the end of the day, this this physical attribute is the most defining thing of a man. It's what makes a man, uh, it's the most defining thing that makes a man. And it is also the most private and, and gently kept and protected part of a man. Okay? So the most masculine thing of a man and the most private and gently protected thing of a man. So this moment, Abraham is trusting God with both the manliest thing about himself as well as the most vulnerable thing about himself. Okay? He's trusting God with the manliest thing about himself and the most vulnerable thing about himself. And it was his this all-in moment. It was an all-in moment. It was something that could never be reversed and would mark him physically for the rest of his life. It was irreversible. And I want us to understand that actions speak louder than words. Commitment is seen in the actions that can't be reversed. Commitment is seen in the actions that can't be reversed. And when he chose to accept this covenant with God through this action, he was choosing to have no reservations with his creator. He chose to have no reservations with God. And he was choosing to give all of himself. He was choosing to believe. He was choosing to hope. He was choosing to trust. He was choosing to have faith. And he showed it by his actions that he wasn't going to hold anything back about himself from God. And it was truly a I'm never going back moment in his faith. So this with that being said, I want us to, to, to understand a couple things around this topic. Because there's there's so much symbolism that Paul makes in the New Testament to, to this moment right here. See, we, we now understand the symbolism behind the the circumcision is this I'm never going back moment is marking him physically as his in, in his uh, walk with God and and it was an outward expression of it of something that uh, was between him and God and the the reason that uh, I want to unpack this is because there's there's a point in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul says circumcision does not save us all throughout is so many parts without romans galatians almost all the times that paul is fighting with other uh, uh believers or leaders that he even calls false believers it is because they are pushing the idea that one can be saved by jesus only if they are circumcised as well and paul describes it a work of the flesh and he, he compares it to, um, it, uh, he compares it in Romans that God would care more about you being circumcised of your heart than of the flesh. If, and he, he gives the example, if you Jews 
behave like you are uncircumcised, meaning uncircumcised of the heart, meaning that uh, you you divulge in debauchery and, and sin, but, you, but you're physically circumcised, does your circumcision save you? And he says, of course not, because your heart is all wrong. And he says, now if you were to do the opposite, if you were to take a Gentile who is circumcised of the heart, that they have, they have, cut, they have cut out the sinfulness within their heart, but they are uh, not circumcised in their actual flesh, that, who is justified? And he talks about how the Gentile would be more, more uh, justified would be justified uh, uh, opposed to the Jew. And he goes on and on about how God cares so much about the heart. And and with that, with an understanding that circumcision is not a requirement for, of our salvation. It, and again, it's especially within Galatians chapter 2, it talks about that. It, it, go, it boils down to what's really in our heart. That there's nothing physical we could truly do that would mark our salvation because that was already done on the cross when Jesus showed his commitment. And for us to have this moment, a moment in our faith of I'm never going back, what does that look like? And I really believe it all goes boils down to the heart. It all boils down to the heart. And just as Paul describes in Romans, there's there's a cutting away of our of our hearts that happens when we have a full surrender in God. And we see Abraham. This is a symbolic moment, but uh, if if we were to use the same kind of dialect that Paul is using, he was circumcised of his heart long time ago. He he's committed with God through and through, and this is just a, a symbolic moment of something that was already internal within him, and. I want you to ask yourself, what is my, uh, when have I made that kind of commitment to Jesus? When have I made that kind of decision of I'm never going back? For me, it was January 27th, 2010, and uh, my uh, circumcision moment uh, was really smoking weed. That was the last thing I was like really holding on to, to where I didn't want to give up. I didn't want to give up for God. Um, I was struggling with it because it was the only thing that at the time that I felt like I could uh, have a guarantee peace. I could trust to give me uh, peace in a moment that I needed it. And God can God showed me and, and spoke to me that I could trust Him with that peace. And I felt like uh, that same day I ended up getting baptized, uh, water baptized. And uh, before... If I were to symbolically look at myself at the moment I gave my life to Christ, if I was, quote-unquote, spiritually baptized, I was holding my joint outside the water. But that day, January 27th, I went all in. There's nothing left. I said, "This is. I'm going to just trust you with everything, God, even my peace. And as I'm sharing that, I'm just projecting to you, for you to have your own moment like that, if you haven't had that already, a moment where you have, I'm never going back, I'm all in. Jesus, I'm all in. So that being said, let, uh, let me pray. Um, God, I thank you for this time that we had together as a group. And I pray that you minister to each of our hearts and help us to grow as men in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.